Welcome to episode 189 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded on Monday 21st of May 2018. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. And now for a limited time, new customers to Jensen USA who are referred by the spokesman get 10% off one item. Simply enter the spokesman, no spaces, at checkout. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed of BikeBiz.com and today I'm talking with Ed Zink of a 50-year-old mountain bike shop in Durango, Colorado. But I hear at least some of you exclaim mountain biking isn't 50 years old yet. So how can there be a shop celebrating this sort of MTB milestone? Well, mountain bike specialists was formerly known as, well, I'll let Ed fill in the details. Ed, it's no longer 1st of March, so I can't wish you a happy Ed Zinc Day today. So it's a, it's a belated one, but ha- happy Ed Zinc Day. Well, thank you. It was kind of fun. Tell, well, tell me about that. How on earth did you get a, a, a state day in Colorado? Well, actually, some of my friends did it for me. I uh, It was a surprise to me. But as it works out, the governor of Colorado is in the microbrewing business to uh. make beer. And some of the local microbrewers... And the governor are friends, so the uh, the local uh, microbrewers got together and called their friend at the governor's mansion and said, "We want to do this because it'll be fun." So we it, did it. It is fun. So I I did a story on Bite Biz where I had a photograph of you with the official state of Colorado proclamation. So that I presume is up in your shop. It is, yes. Now let's let's talk about your shop because I've you can actually go in your shop with Google Street View, can't you? So you can have a wander around and uh and, and have a kind of like a, a virtual walk around your shop. Yes, yes. It's great. So there are lots of there's lots of memorabilia in your shop. So tell tell me what you've got on the walls and then I'll provide a link as well so people can have a wander around virtually. But just tell me what you've got on your walls. Well, we we had the good fortune to uh, be in the right place at the right time in the late 1980s when uh, mountain biking was growing into a national sport and an international sport. And we had a history of producing a bicycle event called the Iron Horse Bicycle Classic, where we race against a coal-fired, steam-driven train. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and we live in the mountains of Colorado, and this train goes up the river to a mining community called Silverton. And and so we would race on the highway on our bicycles, and the train, of course, is on the railroad. And 
it's a, it's an has developed into an iconic event in the United States, about four thousand participants each year. But because we had the history of this iconic event, the Iron Horse Bicycle Classic, we were able to we, we had all the necessary logistical experience to produce bicycle events. And so we started producing mountain bike events, uh, you know, the community as a volunteer effort. And, and as this developed, we started hanging uh, jerseys and banners on the wall of people who came and won national championships and then later world championships uh, as a marketing tool to, to show the significance of these events. So that was going to ask. I was going to ask actually that exact question. In that, you put these up as a, a way of generating footfall into your shop. I presume in that people come to your shop because they know these banners are here, and presumably you make more sales because of that. That is certainly uh, part of our rationale. But frankly, part of the rationale is to try and raise the awareness of elected officials of the significance of these events. So when we need to close a road or get some other service from government, uh, they have a heightened awareness of these events. So it was partly to market our shop, but it was partly to market the sport to the greater population that was not directly participating. So describe mountain biking in Durango then. Durango is located at 6,500 feet above sea level. You can probably convert that into meters. I don't have it on the... Mm -hmm on the top of my head, but, and, and we sit right um, at the edge of the high desert of Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah, you know, similar in elevation to Moab, Utah, or Fruta, Colorado, a little bit lower than Crested Butte, Colorado. But, you know, in Durango, if you look south, you are looking into the high desert and if you turn around and look north, you are looking at high above timberline uh, mountains, like the tallest mountains in the Alps. And so we have a we have a full range of mountain biking. Uh, first, it's year round because of the difference in terrain, and second, then there's a wide range of uh, of types of trails and so we're in we're in perfect topography for mountain biking and then the second thing that happens here in the u.s is there's a lot of public land in the west and particularly in our area over half of the land is public land so you take perfect terrain and mix that with public access, then we have hundreds of miles, thousands of miles of trails 
that we can go right on. And the, the, the history on these trails is primarily they were developed by extractive industries. And by that, I mean, cattlemen running cat, you know, they take your cattle up into the mountains to graze on the grass. Then the trails, you go back and forth to move your cattle or trails to get to timber for logging or trails to get to, uh, veins of rich ore for mining. You know, so these mountains and high desert are just covered mm-hmm. with trails from a hundred years ago. And so we don't have to build new trails. We have to occasionally make an, a, a, a little modification to make the trail system uh, be a little bit more fun for recreational mountain bike riding, but we were blessed with with just a a lot of trails, and uh, so we have the trails and we have the right terrain. All we need is mountain bikes. Somebody had to invent mountain bikes, and there we went. So your shop is called Mountain Bike Specialists. So when I did a story on this on Bike Beers and I said you've been around for 50 years, I had to quickly chip in and say, well, of course, mountain biking didn't exist 50 years ago. So clearly your shop was called something different before the mountain biking clicked in and before you, you, it became mountain bike specialist. So what was the shop before you founded MBS? Uh, it was called The Outdoorsman. And it was a more general shop that sold uh, hunting and fishing equipment, athletic equipment, and bicycles. Mm-hmm. And we had started when I was uh, 20 years old in 1968. And in the early 1990s, we closed out the sporting goods uh materials that we had in our shop and went exclusively to bicycles and we had operated a mail order catalog business by the name of mountain bike specialists and we used that same name for our bricks and mortar shop and we we stopped the mail order catalog business when internet came along but we uh, we we changed the name and have operated as mountain bike specialists for whatever that is, 25 years. So, so 1968 you founded. Yes. Now, um, that was a couple of years before the American mountain, no, American bike boom, not mountain bike boom, but the bike boom, which is most, mostly urban. So cities went through this amazing, you couldn't, get hold of enough bikes there was just bikes were going out of the door left right and center but they were mainly like racing bikes so did you see any of the bike boom bike sales in durango yes absolutely that uh that boom was driven primarily by the oil prices uh, of opec getting organized and driving up the price of oil and and that of course, reduced the availability of gasoline. And in many places in the United States, uh, first, gasoline was very expensive. And then second, it was even some of the time unavailable. 
And so hundreds of people were transforming over to riding bikes. And, and to put that in perspective, particularly out here in the west of the U.S., our distances are great. Our towns are not big. I mean, our town is um, 20,000 people, and it's it's uh, 70 kilometers to the next town. So uh, we're pretty addicted to these automobiles because we have such great distances to travel. But people were buying bicycles, and uh, we we sold more bicycles per year in the early 1970s than we do now. For sure. There's like 15 million sales in the U.S. in 1973. Right. So we've never been better than that, ever. That's um, correct. But these bicycles weren't really bicycles suited to doing much off-road. So these were, were skinny tires. These were uh, road bikes. Yes, that's right. Uh, this off-road thing had not started yet. So, how did the? When was your first sight of a mountain bike? What What did you think of that? That first knobbly tired, fat tire cruiser type thing. What, 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 what? Tell me, tell me how you found out about them. Well, it, it's interesting, and and I think in lots lots of good ideas uh, develop in multiple places at the same time. And certainly the guys in Marin County, you know, Gary Fisher and Charlie Kelly and, uh, and such, you know, they're, they're sort of heralded as the developers and vendors of mountain biking, but there were people in Durango, Colorado doing exactly the same thing at exactly the same time because the technologies that were developing allowed it. And so we were seeing local people experimenting with mountain bike concepts and ideas and starting to ride off-road in that same time period uh, in the late 1970s and into the early 1980s. And so when we they were more sophisticated coming out of California, but conceptually that was happening here and it was happening in Crested Butte and it was happening other places. So we were all very excited about the sophistication that was coming out of California. And uh, we were just going, well, yeah, this makes sense. Let's mm -hmm. go. Mm -hmm. Were you a cyclist yourself at this point? I, um, I, I would at best get a medium as far as being a cyclist. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not particularly skilled, and I don't ride a great deal. Um, but, uh, but I certainly rode some. But you recognize that this bike either the, the the Colorado version or the Californian version, you recognize this something that you could commercialize, you could sell, this has got a future? Yes. And I'll, I'll digress a minute and tell a story. In this general sporting goods store we had, we had some running shoes. And we were not successful at selling our running shoes. We had inventory that we couldn't sell. 
and a new young man moved to Durango and took a job as an auto mechanic, but he had a reputation of being a substantial athlete, uh, and particularly a marathoner and an Ironman competitor. So I went and met him and said, you know, we've got these shoes we can't sell, and we understand you know something about running. Can we hire you to be our shoe salesman? Hmm. And he, he said yes. So we hired him, and he came to work in our retail store, and he could not successfully sell the shoes either. I think we had gotten the wrong brand. But while he was waiting around trying to sell shoes, he said, I'm a pretty fair mechanic. I can work on bicycles. So why don't I work on bicycles while I'm waiting for shoe customers? And he, uh, he, you know, within a few days worked on a mountain bike and said, well, this looks kind of fun. Do you mind if I go take it for a ride? And uh, he did not lose a single race for the next five years. Uh, his name was Ned Overend. <laughs> yep. Has he left, lost any races ever in the, the, the 40 odd years he's been racing? He's just a phenomenon. Yes, he is. He's a great guy. Mm. So this was what year? When, when was Ned working for you? It was the early 1980s. I'm embarrassed I don't remember the specific year, but probably 82 or 83. Okay. So Ned basically got into mountain biking by seeing a, a commercial product in your shop, or was this a like a, a woodsy bike? No, this this would have been a Swin made by Swin, uh, a Sierra, and then a High Sierra, mm -hmm. which by today's standards would not uh, not be given a second look as a mountain bike, but uh, it was in those days. So correct me if I'm wrong, but before he rode for Specialized, he rode for Schwinn. That's correct. Yes. Yes. So we know him now as, as you know, a Specialized rider. He's been a Specialized rider for must be 25 years. But before that, there was a Schwinn team. Correct. And he, let's see, he, he changed from Schwinn to Specialized in 1987. Oh, yeah, very early. Okay, right. And is Ned, he's still Durango now, yes? Yes. And, you know, we've talked a little about the things hanging on the walls in our store. Uh, we had so much, so many things we could hang on the wall that we arbitrarily had to find a way to limit them. And... Uh, so it became, your jersey did not go on our wall if you did not live in Durango mm -hmm. and you weren't at least a national champion. <laughs> so it's national champions, world champions, and Olympians, and you have to have lived in Durango. We have a couple of exceptions to that. but That's tough rules, but that also shows you what an amazing clientele you've got. Yes, yes. And, and, you know, one of the ones we have that, that we bend the rules is Sean Yates. Uh, he came here to visit on his uh, honeymoon. So we have a Sean Yates jersey, and we're, of course, very excited to watch his uh, boys 
racing in the Giro and the Tour of California. Yeah, so Sean Yates as in the, the, the British road rider. Yes. Ah, yeah. oh, that's cool. Okay. Now, there is another banner in your shop, which I've done a number of stories on. And that was, it's a handmade banner. It's huge. And it's from the World Mountain Bike Championships in 1990. And that banner disappeared for a good number of years, didn't it? Yes, we we actually had two of those banners made. They are six feet high and uh, 40 feet long. So they would go across the street of our town. One of them was across the street. And the other was the, the start-finish line of the World Championships in 1990. And as luck would have it, we had wonderful weather in September for these World Championships. And within minutes of the final closing ceremony, a major storm set in. And by the next, and, and we looked at that amount of rain, it was just pouring rain and cold and it was changing to snow. And somebody said, do we need to take that banner down? <laughs> and we all said, we are so tired and this weather is so bad, we're just going to deal with it tomorrow morning. Well, that was too long because by tomorrow morning, that banner had been taken down by someone else and disappeared. And it disappeared until 2012. So it was, yeah. a, it was a long disappearance. Yes. And, and we put a lot of energy in trying to find it. We, uh, we, you know, we would try and get secret uh, access to the information and we would follow leads and, uh, it, it was a challenge to us to try and get that back. But in Europe, there was a, uh, and I'm embarrassed, I don't remember where you probably do. Uh, Ned, Ned was going to an event, a commemorative event. And when he arrived, this banner was on display yes. because they intended to give it back to him to return it back to Durango. Yes, so it was uh, Villard de Lons in France in 2012. And I'm looking at a photograph of it now, in fact, in front of the uh, uh, one of the hotels in, in town. Yeah. So this was yeah. where there was a world championship event, because there was many world championship events in these, these formative years. There was a world championship event in 1987. And this 2012 event was like a, a, a commemoration of that, and so Gary Fisher tweeted that this banner has reappeared. So that was the first indication we had that this famous long lost banner, lost in 1990, had suddenly turned up in this French ski resort. Now I, I've got uh, a, a, an inkling, a pretty good idea of who did have that banner for all those years. Do you also have an inkling who it might have been? I've given up thinking about it. <laughs> I've never really published who I, th I thought it was. Um, uh, because it, it doesn't really matter in many ways in that it's just, it reappeared. So it doesn't matter who had it for right. uh, for those years. But we're, that we're, is now pride of place in your shop, isn't it? Yes, and we appreciate getting it back. 
it uh, it helps tell the the story of the history. It, in our opinion, it's uh, does a great more service to the history of mountain biking to be on on display in our retail shop than it does to be hidden under someone's bed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So t- talk me through the ups and downs of mountain bike retail because 1990 we're talking you know getting to the starting to peak starting to get big but then we've been through um some pretty big troughs as well in 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 mountain biking demand so so where have you seen how's your business fared over these these 40 years that that mountain biking's been around well certainly retailing is a business that uh it changes and you know there's good times and bad times and they're sometimes tied to economy and sometimes they're tied to other issues uh access or public perception or uh, a, a variety of things we have been probably a little insulated from the up and down that exists in the general marketplace because we are such a destination location. And so people come to Durango to ride their mountain bikes. And uh, we are we are not dependent on the local community. We're not entirely dependent on the local community for our economic base. But, uh, you know, it's been fascinating to watch and the the evolution of development of product uh in, and I would point to um you know shock absorbers I mean when we started in the 80s there were no shock absorbers uh as it turned out in 1990 at the world championships uh Ned Overend was an employee of mine and he won the cross country and Greg Herbold was also an employee of mine, and he won the downhill, and he had shock absorbers, and no one else did. Mm. And that could well have made the difference of why he won. So as as these new developments come along, uh, that's usually a shot in the arm for the retail business to everyone wants the newest, greatest thing. And... Um, but uh, we we have not seen as much fluctuation in business as the industry has seen. Mm. Yeah, because you're, as you said, you're a destination shop. So you're like a, a resort town where people are coming to deliberately go ride their bikes. Correct. Hmm. So you're talking about how the, the, the product there, it's great to have innovations, but we have quite a lot of innovations in that, the spread of product, the spread of wheel sizes, the spread of all sorts of different standards in mountain biking must make it awfully difficult to retail them across all of those sectors and across all of those standards. Well, it's a two-edged sword in that uh, it does make it somewhat challenging, but that also provides a reason for people to utilize a retail shop uh, to help get 
advice to help be able to see these different choices, uh, you know, to actually be able to stand there and say, okay, this is a 26 inch wheel. This is a 27 and a half. This is a 29. This is a fatter tire. This is a thinner tire. That story can be better told in, in real time uh, for people who can touch and feel this, this stuff than it can be, say, on the Internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, although some people are quite skilled at getting their information from the Internet, other people prefer to see and touch. Um, and so the complexity has somewhat worked in the favor of retail, in my opinion. Uh, it, it adds some challenges. It makes it harder to have the right inventory, but it does uh, it does provide an opportunity for us to give a service that is not available um, without there being a retail store. So what is selling for you at the moment then? What's, what's the categories that are doing well? Well, I would have to check in at the store today. I could tell you what sold yesterday. <laughs> and, and I'm being a little facetious, but it is frankly amazing how quickly things can go from non-existent to really hot to disappearing. They, it just, it is so quick. Uh, you know, it used to be you'd, you would order a, what you thought you would sell in bicycles in an entire year. You'd go make your preseason order of all the bikes you thought you would sell next year. Well, in today's market, uh, the things can change in, in 30 days. Mm-hmm. So the, the advanced time uh, for a retail shop has really come down. You've got to be quick and nimble. Uh, but uh, in our market, um, medium to high suspension and uh, it's probably kind of split between 27.5 and 29. Mm-hmm. What about gravel bikes? Uh, in that we have so much available in trails, we are not seeing the explosion of gravel bikes that other places are, although they're picking up. But if if we look at Kansas, which is a a state out in the Great Plains where uh, they have a gravel road every mile. That's how they laid that country out uh, on a grid of every mile there's a road. So it's a, it's a checkerboard. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they, they have hundreds of miles of gravel roads and your choice is to ride on the asphalt or ride on the gravel. Well, you know, that's, the popularity of gravel is tremendous. Uh, if your choice is a nice single track or a gravel road, a lot of people still prefer the single track. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And is it is it lots of lift-assisted stuff where you are, or people have got to ride up? We don't have – it's mostly ride up. We have, uh, we have one ski area that can uh, – take people up and we have a little bit of um, 
uh, tour service, but for the most part, uh, it's ride your own bike. And where do you see the industry? Where do you see the industry, the mountain bike industry, the bike industry? Where do you see it going in the next five to ten years? Well, a, a couple thoughts, and thank you for that question. The uh, When they first came out with 29-inch wheels, I predicted that wheel size would evolve to the point uh, that that there would be different wheel sizes for different sizes of people that tall people would ride 29s or maybe even 30 or 31s and short people would ride smaller wheels because of the, the, the relationship feel between the rider and their bike. Mm. And, uh, that's, that's starting to kind of work its way out. So I, I think we will see more personalization of bike design to the rider. Um, and we're, we're making progress in that, but I think we'll see more of it. Now, something that has not happened particularly here in the Western United States is e-bikes. While I understand they're becoming very common in Europe, uh, they are still being met with skepticism by American riders, as uh, it's common to say that's cheating. Well, it's not cheating any more than having big gears on your rear wheel. It's it's using technology to have the kind of experience you want to have. So I think a combination of more more customization of bike design to fit the rider and the um, continuation of development of battery assist. Um, I think it, it's a bright future for bicycling. So there are no restrictions on your public lands for e-bikes, e-mountain bikes? That's not quite accurate. The The issue is some of the land management agencies consider uh, e-bikes as motorized. So if there is restriction against motorized, that applies to e-bikes. Uh, but it, it's an issue that's being sorted out. I think in five years we'll have a more clear picture, and I think e-bikes will be allowed, uh, will be accepted more than they are currently. Uh, there's there's a fear factor. I mean, it, it's new technology, and and so land managers are nervous of what's this going to do to the trails on my segment of public land. But they're uh, as they get more experience with them. They're recognizing uh, that there's nothing inherently evil. I mean, we went through the same thing when mountain bikes came along. You know, people said, what are these? They don't belong on our trails. What's going on? And uh, we've gotten over that. So we'll get over this too, I think. What, What brands are you selling in your shop? We're primarily a specialized dealer, but we also sell Cannondale and a boutique line called Niner. Mm-hmm. It's, 
which have sort of changed hands recently, even though it's the same management? Yes, yes. But, uh, you know, we, we've had the good fortune, or at least fun, that uh, during the late 80s and early 90s, and when we were in the mail order business with catalogs, uh, probably in our 50 years of being in the bicycle industry, we have probably sold, I'm trying to add in my head while I talk, uh, 30 different brands. Mm-hmm. So we've sold most everything that's out there mm-hmm. at a time or another. And then you've kind of narrowed it down with the a relatively, I mean, three brands is 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 quite narrow. Uh, yes, and, and I mean, partly the the companies have, uh, particularly the larger companies, have given a wider range of product, and uh, and you know, a lot of the companies have gone away. And so, and it it's, you know, with the broad offerings of companies like Specialized and Cannondale, uh, you can get most everything you need with two or three lines. There's, he, there's always a little cachet with uh, some of these boutique lines that appeal to a specific market, but in terms of general availability of technology – um, it only takes two or three lines to get that. So do you go to trade shows like Interbike, or if you've got such a narrow range of brands, you can go to just their house shows? Well, you, you know, the, the market has changed in that regard. Uh, trade, the, the industry trade shows used to be very essential to keep up w- with what was going on. And uh, the specific brand shows are what we focus on more these days. Uh, although we frequently attend the general industry shows, it is less significant in our buying decisions. Hmm. That's that's a very common comment. So that doesn't bode well for those kind of big shows, does it? Uh, I think not. It, I mean, it's it's a challenge and... and in, the information, how information is distributed, disseminated, has been so greatly impacted by social media and the Internet and those uh, mechanisms that uh, going and doing things in person is becoming less and less. I mean, it's, it's less for us, but it's also less for our customers very frequently when a customer arrives in our retail shop, they have done sufficient research that they they know a great number of facts. They just need to make a, a connection between all the facts they've gathered and what does that actually look like or what does that actually feel like or let me ride that around and see how that feels to me. But uh, but the same thing is true on uh, in our access to the information from the manufacturers. We we can know a great deal about what they're doing without having to go to a show to find it out. Mm. 
See, you've, you've obliquely mentioned the internet there, but many other bike shops talk about how the internet is destroying uh, the business. And you're saying, well, customers are actually using the internet to do the research and then come into the shop and buy. So the internet isn't destroying the business. Well, it, destroying, that that's a, such a judgmental term. Uh, it's changing the business. You know, re- retailing, I've been doing it for 50 years. Uh, it used to be primarily a information, providing information to people to help them make their decision. And it is less about the information and more about the experience that they come in and they can touch and they can feel and they get reassurance on their, their, uh, uh, decision. And, you know, to to point to that more specifically, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to explain this well, but I'll try. One of the things that has become a challenge with so much information is if, you know, if you come into a shop and buy a bike and you go home and you're proud of it and you tell your friends, well, I just bought a specialized S-Works, you you are at risk of getting criticism of, well, why didn't you look at the Trek and why didn't you choose the Cannondale and did you think about the pivot? And, you know, the, because they're all, they know what the, the specifications of what you bought and they know the specifications of the other bikes. And, you know, you will, you will be barraged with, challenges of why did you make that decision and one of the services we provide for people who are not a highly technical interest is is defense so they can defend their decision Hmm. so they can say here's why i bought what i bought uh, and feel good about it and not feel intimidated by the uh, the tech heads at the social gathering. Mm. Now, I'm potentially going to be being very rude here, and you can absolutely slap me down if I'm being far too rude. But if you've been retailing bikes since 1968 and you've been doing it for 50 years, you're not going to be doing it for the next 50 years um, so what's the succession plan for your shop? Well, that has been contemplated, but not formalized. And, uh, certainly, uh, we've entered into some discussions with our staff and that would be, uh, that would be great. But I think, uh, if you call back in, Five years, I can tell you how it worked out. Because <laughs> yeah. your shop, I mean, for, because it's called the Mountain Bike Specialist, it's not called the Ed Zink store. So there is that succession is a bit easier in that it's not linked to you personally. Right. I, I can take my Ed Zink Day poster and, <laughs> and uh, they can do just fine without me. 
Thanks to Ed Zink of Mountain Bike Specialists. Was I rude to ask that final question? Probably. Anyway, Ed handled it well. The shop website and the Google Street View walkaround that I mentioned can be found on the show notes at thespokesman.com and that is the-spokesman.com. But that's it for today's show. This has been episode 189 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. We'll be back shortly, perhaps with an actual roundtable recording. Although that's often tough to organise between different transatlantic locations and when would-be guests are often out on their bikes instead. Thanks for staying subscribed to the show. Remember to tell your cycling friends that we're on iTunes and other podcast platforms and stay tuned for the next episode. Meanwhile, get out there and ride.